Psalms. So Psalm 136. Let's start with our summary statement here. Psalm 136 praises Yahweh for his enduring covenant faithfulness to all generations. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 136 praises Yahweh for his enduring covenant faithfulness to all generations. Simple outline for the psalm is two parts. Verses 1 to 16, redemption. Verses 17 to 26, restoration. So I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 16, redemption. Verses 17 to 26, restoration. All right, so we'll move to our observations then. So Psalm 136 is an anonymous psalm. You can see that there is no superscription there, so there's no author attribution um, and no no real compelling um, reason to assign any authorship um, to, to the psalm. Uh, no musical direction that is given in the psalm. And there's no occasion that is given for the psalm. And so it's, uh, it's sort of like uh, the previous psalm we looked at, Psalm 135, that you do have certain textual clues um, within the text of the psalm that points to a post-exile composition. So in other words, that means it's late. Um, If you think about the psalms, the the earliest psalm uh, would probably be the psalm of Moses in Psalm 90. And then you have a whole host of psalms written by David. You have uh, a couple, I forget the exact number, but a couple that are written by Solomon and, and and some by the sons of Asaph and, and for the Korah, sons of Korah and all this sort of thing. So they do come from different time periods, and so this would make the psalm a, a late psalm, some of the latest that was written. Um, psalm 136, to categorize it, it is a praise psalm. Um, you, we could call it a thanksgiving psalm. Um, as you can see, I'll give thanks as that's repeated a number of times. But the word for um, giving thanks there actually is most often actually translated praise. And so really both ideas um, can be um, conveyed by the term. Um, and it does follow uh, the conventions of a praise psalm. So you have verses 1 to 3 that are an opening call to praise. And you can see how it's, it's worded there, oh, give thanks. So there's a direction there to give thanks or to praise. Um, verses 4 to 25 are a pretty extensive catalog of praiseworthy acts of God, reasons to praise. And verse 26 is a concluding call to praise. It's sort of like uh, a reflection or, or a conclusion. You know, having said all of this, oh, you know, give thanks. Um, so it does follow those conventions. So it is a, it is a praise psalm. 
Uh, again, the, the idea of thanksgiving and praise are really, um, typically they are, they're intertwined um, when those are used and not necessarily easy to, to separate. It does have some minor elements, so you get minor creation elements, reference, uh, references to the creation in the psalm. You also uh, have an element of the history of Israel that is rehearsed um, within the psalm. Now, when we think about the connections that Psalm 136 has, um, it's very strongly connected to Psalm 135. So um, this psalm gives a rehearsing of the history of Israel, um, and it does so with the intention of praising God for his past acts of deliverance and looking forward to future acts of deliverance that have been promised being fulfilled. And obviously, we saw a lot of that in Psalm 135. Now, having said that, the two psalms are, are actually quite a bit different, um, even though uh, you know both are praise psalms. Uh, both have this strong or, or center um, of historic um, of, of the, you know, the historic telling of, of Israel's deliverance. Um, but beyond that, it's connected with other history of Israel type psalms like Psalm 78, Psalms 105, and 106. And it does have some outside connections external to the psalms. So obviously, there's going to be many connections to the Pentateuch um, because the, the, that's where the source material, you might say, of, of this history is. So you have references to the creation, you have references to the Exodus, you have references um, to the wilderness wanderings, you have references to, to the land conquest. So you obviously are going to have um, connections with the Pentateuch in that regard. But you're also going to have external connections with other post-exilic rehearsals of Israel's history, like what is found in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so remember when I talk about um, exile... That is, um, you know, Israel being carried away. Uh, we know that it happened with the northern kingdom. A uh, hundred years, a little over a hundred years later, it happens with the southern kingdom and then the destruction of Jerusalem and sort of that completes um, the, the exile. And so they are off of their land. Um, they do not have any um, independent national identity at that point. Um, and even after the return, like in, you read about in Nehemiah and Ezra, it was, it was partial. Um, it was a partial return to the land. It, it wasn't a full occupancy of the land. And even yet, again, they did not really have an independent national identity. Um, over time, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the um, governorship over that land, you know, changed hands starts with the Persians, you know, and, and, you know, ends up with the Greeks and then eventually by the Romans, and uh, that's where they are when you get into the New Testament. But again, they don't have that independent national identity and possession of their land, and so technically that exile continues. Um, so, but when we talk about post-exilic works, we're talking about those things written like Nehemiah, uh, and Ezra and a few of the minor prophets, um, the first and second chronicles, those books that are written after that exile happened, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, 586 BC. So it does have a, a strong connection with those sort of that sort of um, writings. Uh, and again, Nehemiah chapter nine is is one good example. Now the poetic features of, of Psalm 136 are um, just 
blindingly obvious um, when you read the psalm. Um, it has a unique structure. There's no other psalm that is exactly like this. Um, the entire psalm is, if you want a fancy term, it's an antiphonal um, pattern. Uh, so you have 26 verses or versets, however you want to put that, and each verset has two lines. And the first line makes some sort of a statement, and in this case it's typically uh, some reference to the works of, of God, some reason to, to praise him. And then the second line repeats a refrain. And that second line refrain is repeated in every verse. And so you can see it there starting with verse 1, the last phrase, for his mercy endureth forever. That's the second line, and that is repeated every single verse. You get it 26 times um, in the psalm. And again, there's no other psalm um, that is written like that. So that antiphonal um, type of, of reference there, essentially what that means, um, you can think of it as, as being call and response. Um, so the way that it's laid out, it, it would seem that you know, you'd have one set of singers that would sing the first line and, and another set of singers that would sing the second line, and, and they would just keep working their way all through the entire, um, the entire psalm. And so, it, again, it's a unique structure. Um, there are some call and response and things in the Psalms, but not quite like this. We have some refrains that are repeated in the Psalms, but again, not like it is here. And so that's, that's the, obviously the most, um, the most obvious element of the poetic features is the, just the way that this Psalm is structured. And then, and then really everything sort of flows out from that. Like everything is, this, this structure is sort of, um, in a sense, dictating um, how this, the expressions of this psalm. And so you can see um, the call to praise, verses 1, 2, and 3. Oh, give thanks is the way they start. And then when you get to these, these uh, praiseworthy acts, you're, you're going to notice to him, to him, to him, to him that gets repeated. Now, sometimes there will be a little bit of an interruption of that pattern, um, but usually not for long. Then it comes back to to him. And every time that it moves to another section or another topic, it, it, at least at the start, you're going to get that to him um, before you get the other things. And then that refrain is just going to continue to run throughout. So you do get repetition, uh, repetition of the word for thanks or praise. Um, but that, that refrain, for his mercy endureth forever. And that word for mercy, it is chesed. Um, and it is repeated in every single verse of the psalm. And so obviously that is a major emphasis that uh, God's covenant love, covenant mercy, covenant faithfulness. There's usually a number of ways that we try to describe this, this word. Um, and sometimes it's just simply mercy, sometimes steadfast love. There, there's a number of ways that it's translated, um, but typically it's, it's a covenant association and Clearly, in this psalm, it is it is a covenant association, and so you get that repetition um, that goes through as well. Now, the the another aspect of sort of the structural aspect and poetic features of, of the psalm is that when you look at the history section, so the history section starts in verse four and it goes all the way to verse twenty-two. So it is it's the bulk; it's the majority of the psalm, 
And that history section actually flows exactly chronologically. That isn't always the case, but it is here in this particular psalm. So you start with creation, and you're going to work through chronologically, not that it touches every point of Israel's history, but, but major points all the way to um, the, inher- the, you know, the divvying up of the land, of the land inheritance that you're going to get um, in, you know, in, in, the, um, in the end. So it, it, it does follow a chronological progression. Now, in terms of imagery, um, the psalm doesn't really rely on a lot of imagery. So I, I would say imagery is pretty minimal um, in this psalm. It's, it's much more straightforward. So the structure that you have and this repeated rep- refrain and the repetition, um, you get some superlatives and things like that that's used in the psalm. So it doesn't really rely on imagery so much. You do get some, one example I would say of, of some minimal imagery would be poetic type expression. So like in verse 12, you get reference to God bringing Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand and a stretched out arm. And that's, that's a, again, that's a poetic expression. And it's, it's giving some imagery, and we'll talk about that when, when, we, um, when we get there as far as its, its meaning and such. Um, so that's, that's the um, primary um, features of, of the psalm and its, its structure and, and uh, poetic expression. So we do want to work through this psalm, 26 verses. So uh, again, uh, a, little, a little bit long, but um, especially for what we've been, been looking at. But most of the, of the end of the psalms are, are, not, are not long psalms. Um, but I'll go ahead and read through this. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever. 
and gave their land for an heritage, for his mercy endureth forever. Even an heritage unto Israel his servant, for his mercy endureth forever. Who remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endureth forever. And hath redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endureth forever. Who giveth food to all flesh, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. So verses 1 to 3 give us this opening call to praise. It's the direction. Oh, give thanks. In other words, the, uh, the implied subject is you. You. Give thanks. Give praise um, unto the Lord. Now, again, the word for thanks is most often translated um, praise. Um, but we're, we're told to praise because God is good. And um, that's, again, we've seen this term a number of times. It's, it's good in the, in the widest, broadest sense of good and of, and of doing good. Not, not only does God do what he, you know, he wills to do or has the power to do, but he's, he is good. He does good. Now, this particular verse, this opening verse 1, um, is actually um, repeated from ver- Psalm 107 and verse 1, Psalm 118, verse 1, and verse 29 in that psalm. And so that's, a, that's an echo um, from um, prior psalms. And then we get these superlatives, God of gods and Lord of lords. And these are, these are expressions of absolute supremacy. In other words, there is none greater. Um, Yahweh is over all. He is supreme. He is superior. Um, and that, that is the uh, expression and, and reason given to praise in these verses. Now, of course, um, this refrain repeats, and um, the word for mercy is hesed, so it is God's covenant faithfulness, his loyal love, his covenant love. There's so many ways that we try to describe this, this term. But the emphasis here is repeated over and over, and the emphasis is on the, on the enduring forever. It, it's his covenant faithfulness that endures forever. Now, what that means is that it extends to all generations. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't end with the life of Abraham. It didn't end with the life of Isaac. It didn't end with the life of Jacob. It didn't end with the life of Moses and, and, on, and on that we could go. His covenant faithfulness endures forever. You know, sometimes, um, you know, we may have uh, contracts and they may have expiration dates and, and they may have contingencies in there that if such and such a condition is not met by, by a certain time, you know, the, these um, stipulations are null and void and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but God's faithfulness to his sworn promises that we sometimes refer to as covenant or covenant promises, it is, it's timeless. It's without end. There's no expiration date. God will fulfill it. Now, the other, the other thing that this means, that his chesed endures forever, it also means that it is seen in all of his works. So think about this line being repeated every single time, whether it's a praiseworthy attribute of God, he's good. He's God of gods. He's Lord of lords. Or it is a praiseworthy work of God, that he has brought Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand and a stretched out arm. 
everything that keeps getting repeated, that, that it is, all of his works are done in faithfulness, in faithfulness to his word, what God has sworn that he is going to do. Well, so then in verses 4 to 9, and, and of course verse 4 is where the history section of the psalm begins. And this history section breaks down into a few different parts. So verses 4 to 9 all refer to God's works, God's acts in the creation of the universe. And um, you can you really can somewhat follow along with Genesis 1 and 2 um, for, for these references. Um, that God does great wonders um, refers to miracles. It, it refers to... Uh, oftentimes it's associated with his acts of deliverance, and in this case it's referred to in the acts of the creation. And of course, there's a, there's a, a commonality there um, that the, the power of God's acts in creation is the very same power that is at work and is, and is behind the fulfillment of his promises to his um, people and and even down as you get toward the end of the psalm, his giving of of all kinds of food to to all the living creatures of his creation. It's all the same power that that is at work. So his great wonders, like that he worked in the Exodus, and there's actually an emphasis here in verse four that that God alone does great wonders. And as I started digging into that, what, what I understand is that there's a, there's a preposition that's used there um, in the Hebrew that, that brings out the sense of, of alone or the sense of solitude. And the point is God has done all of these great works of himself. He's done everything that he's done of himself. That means without help. That means without permission or leave from any other being. Everything that God has done is of himself. He alone has worked these great works. Now, he, he does these works in wisdom. Uh, he made the heavens in particular. The word here that's used is a word, a very common word, appears in Proverbs, one of the uh, one of the related terms, there are several different words for wisdom that's used in Proverbs and as well as in other parts of the Old Testament as well. But it's a common word, um, typically has to do with understanding and skill. And, and really it's, it's a word that you, that you could, especially if, if you're using it in reference to making or creating, um, it might be uh, a word that, that would describe a, a master craftsman uh, who works with understanding and skill. And then we get these references, he made the heavens and the earth and the waters and the sun and and the moon. Uh, And again, we get this repeated refrain that reflects on those works that are stated. Praise him who made the heavens with supreme solitary power in covenant faithfulness. Verses 10 to 12 um, give a recount, a, a a reference to the exodus uh, so that'd be Exodus chapters one to thirteen. Um, they center on God's mighty works to bring Israel out of Egypt. And and think about some of the things that are said there. Um, he killed the firstborn of Egypt. Now we've already we've already had the psalm to start and say 
He's good. Implication, everything that he does is good. He's killed the firstborn of Egypt. And not only that, we get that refrain again. He did so in covenant faithfulness to bring Israel out. So this reference to the Exodus centers on God's mighty works to bring Israel out of Egypt and echoes descriptions that we get in places like Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 34 and chapter 5 and verse 15, chapter 26 and verse 8. Again, uses that expression, a strong hand and a stretched out arm. And, and the emphasis there is, again, that, it, that it's God's work alone and it's by his own power. And when you go back and you, you study Exodus God repeats to Moses numerous times that he's going to bring Israel out of Egypt and he's going to do it in such a way that all the nations are going to know that the God of Israel has rescued them from the nation of Egypt. In other words, he's going to do it in such a way that it's going to be plain that he did it by his own power. His own arm, his own hand has brought this people out. And so this is what we're getting reference to here. Verses 13 to 15 then particularly refer to the Red Sea crossing. Uh, that's, of course, recounted in, in Exodus chapters 14 um, and 15. And again, we, we get God's work um, of redemption or rescue on the one hand, and then on the other hand, he overthrew Pharaoh. Uh, he, he, he drowned his host in the Red Sea. But again, the Lord is good. Verse 16 um, refers, and this just in one verse, to the wilderness wandering. Uh, so that'd be Numbers uh, chapters 1 to 20. Um, and here we get in number 16, I mean in verse 16, we also get this reference to him leading his people through the wilderness. So it's another example of where we see Am, the, the Hebrew word Am, and it means nation. It's used in the singular um, and it is used with the possessive, his nation. And again, every time it is a reference to Israel. Verses 17 to 20 then um, recount the Amorites and uh, the defeat of these famous and, and you know, very uh, strong kings, uh, Og and, and Siam. And you get... Also here, you get some allusion, him, him slaying these um, champion kings. Um, you get some allusion to this divine warrior um, motif that we've seen going throughout the Psalms, which really, I, I think, has its first beginning back in Exodus 15 and the Song of Moses. After, um, after that, God, they had passed through the Red Sea, and then he drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And there on the other side, on the banks of the Red Sea, um, Moses sang this song of, of praise to the Lord um, and describes him as a great and mighty warrior. And so we've, we've seen that uh, in the Psalms in a number of places, as, as well as in some other places um, in, the, in the Bible as well. And in verses 21 to 22 get to the land inheritance. So you see their land for a heritage or an inheritance, a possession. Um, echoed again, it's repeated in, in verse number 22. And it's Israel, his, 
his servant, the, uh, their land, the land of the Canaanite, the kings that he, that he slew. Um, so this is a, um, a, and you can see uh, this inheritance and, and again, the divvying up the possessions there in Numbers uh, chapters 34 and 35. And this is a reference to the land of Canaan promised to Abraham in places like Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, uh, Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 8. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Uh, More recently in the Psalms, Psalm 105, verses 8 to 11. And then we get verses 23 to 26, which sort of form the conclusion of the psalm because what you get here are you get a response and then you get the concluding call to praise. And it it really does form sort of a conclusion to the whole psalm. So you're, one of the things that, that's noticeable is the movement that you see here because all of a sudden in verse 23, uh, he's, he's, he's calling for praise to him who remembered us in our low estate. And so at, at this point in verses 23 to 25, you get a change to these first person pronouns, us and our. And everything we've seen up to this point in the psalm it's been them. It's been Israel. It's been past history. Um, and now we get this change to the first person all of a sudden. Well, obviously, you, you read the psalm and you, and you see a, a change like that. And what it is communicating is that God's covenant faithfulness, because that refrain just continues. It just keeps getting repeated. And so the point is that God's covenant faithfulness, it wasn't just for them back there it wasn't just for Israel of old Israel in Egypt or even the second generation that's that's um, ready to to go into the land it's it's not just for them historically but it is for us referring to the the uh, community of Israel the um, Israel to be restored as well and so there, obviously there's such an obvious movement of the psalm that way. And you get this use of this term remembered, and we've, we've run into it a number of times in the psalms. And typically, again, it's a covenantal association. There's something that God's remembering. Um, it's not that, that God is just suddenly calling to mind, oh, uh, yeah, the people of Israel um, haven't done anything for them in a while, so maybe I'll go over here and, and, and do something for them. No, it's God remembering his promises to their fathers and him acting on those, that remembrance on those promises. And of course, the point is not that God has forgotten or will forget or is in danger of forgetting. Um, but the point is that there's a fulfillment promise that's assured no matter the time that passes. The time that passes doesn't, doesn't affect God's promises at all. So 2,000 years of exile, that, that does not affect God's promises at all. God doesn't decide, well, eh, it's been this long. You know, why, why bring them back now? Uh, you know, it's, it's been this long. No, not at all. There's no effect. So there's an assurance there um, of God's promises no matter the time that passes. Now, there's another term that's used here in verse number 24, and it's translated here redeemed. And hath redeemed us from our enemies. Now, again, post-exile setting, um, obviously this has not happened yet. So I didn't categorize this as prophetic predictive because it's, it's, it's quite subtle, um, but it is speaking in terms of 
now as if something has happened that hasn't. Something that's promised in the future to happen as if it's already happened, but it hasn't. Um, so we do get that. But this term for redeemed, the word that's used here is actually quite rare. It does not occur very often in the Old Testament. There are, uh, there's another term that's translated redeemed that does occur much more frequently. This word has the idea of violence with it, force. And in fact, most of the times that it's used, it's, it's translated in some form of breaking, something that has been broken in, in two. Um, and it could refer to a family. It could refer to some object that's been broken in two. But it's only used one other time in this sort of a setting where it refers to redeeming Israel from their enemies. So this is referring to a rescue, a deliverance, a deliverance by violence and force, which means a deliverance through judgment. So there's only one other place that this word is used all the Old Testament, and that is in Lamentations chapter 5 and verse number 8. And there it is an exilic reference looking forward to future promised deliverance from Israel's enemies. And that is the exact way that it is used here. So again, the reference here looks forward as if it's accomplished, but it hasn't yet actually been done. And then we get this reference to God's providential care to all his creatures. In other words, he's not, he's not only good to Israel. He's not only um, concerned to, uh, to Israel. He's not only faithful to Israel. In fact, if you go back again and think about his covenant with Abraham, what did he promise there? That he's going he's to bless Abraham and the nation he's going to make for him, but he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through him and that nation descended from him. So this, this extends um, much broader in, in scope. And then verse uh, 26 ends the uh, appropriate call to pray. So like you come all the way down to the end of this psalm and it, and it seems that this is, this, is, um, um, this is the appropriate response. This is the expected response. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven for his mercy endureth forever. And everything in the psalm, again, based on that refrain. All right, let's go to interpretation. So Psalm 136 teaches the absolute supremacy of God. And, and, and when you read a psalm like this and you think about the absolute supremacy of God, it's not just that God can do anything. In other words, the psalm here is not asserting just sort of a general statement that God can do anything. Anything is possible for God to do. He's not even saying in this supremacy of, of God that God does whatever he wants to do. When you read this psalm, you realize that this psalm is saying he will do everything he has promised to do. That, that's the point being made here. So again, God is absolutely sovereignly supreme. But that doesn't, that it's not just general. That, well, he can, you know, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can do anything. No, it, it's God is absolutely sovereignly supreme, and therefore 
He will do everything that he has spoken, everything that he has promised and purposed to do, he will do. No matter, um, no matter who opposes, no one can successfully oppose or prevent his purposes from being fulfilled. So you, you also get some movement in, in the psalm, and again, I know you have sort of a chronological um, order to the, to the history in the psalm, but when you think about it, <clears throat> you know, why start at creation? And you get this movement from creation to redemption. You go from, from creation to exodus. And so this actually happens in, in other places in the Bible as well, this sort, of, this sort of movement from creation to redemption. And the point is, is that the great power of God that is evident in his creating of the universe and the heavens and the earth and, and everything that in them is is the very same power that is used to redeem his people. So, he, in other words, not, nothing can prevent it. He, and God is not just great. When we think about the absolute sovereign supremacy of God, you say, well, God is great. God's not just great. God's also good. And we get that again right from the very start in this psalm, that um, he, he is forever covenantally loving um, and good. So Psalm 136 teaches that God will overcome all obstacles to restore his people of Israel to their land. And the, this is the hope that's represented in those post-exilic writings. You look at those last writings of the Old Testament and places like Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 2, and chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, chapter 7, verse 12 and 21, Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, chapter 2, verse 4, um, and verse 20 as well. Second Chronicles, chapter 36 and verse 23. This is the hope. So the Messianic hope of this psalm is, is obviously seen through the theology of the land and Israel's restoration that's developed, especially in the Psalms in particular, but outside the Psalms as well. It's completely consistent with that. But that, that restoration of Israel to the land is dependent on David's son, who is David's Lord, sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem and ruling over all of the earth. And we've seen that developed throughout the Psalms. So obviously the, then we see the messianic hope here because this is only going to be realized when that, is, when that comes to pass. But also think about those superlatives that are used in verses 2 and 3. God of gods and Lord of lords. Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. All those three different words that are, that are used, they're expressing that sovereign supremacy of God. And then you realize that those in the New Testament are actually spoken of Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. 
Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. One more, Revelation 19, 16. And he, that is Jesus Christ in, in Revelation 19, he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you remember that Revelation 19 is the vision of the divine warrior coming to the earth at the end of the tribulation on the white horse and um, the armies um, of heaven following after him. All right, go to application. I kept one main application for this, uh, how the, that we as modern readers um, read Psalm 136 and, and how that we do make application. So understanding Psalm 136 helps us understand how to marvel at God's greatness in his past acts. In other words, when we understand what a psalm like this is teaching us and what it's saying, we should not look at all of these histories of the Old Testament as just some sort of old, dead, dry recitation of facts. So we should we marvel at God's greatness in his past acts. Why? Because in them is our hope for his acts in the future, those things that he has promised to do. Those acts are the fulfillment of his promises, and no one and no thing can stop him. And again, those apply, particularly as is expressed here, to the hope of the nation of Israel, but we also know they, that that applies more broadly um, to us as well, to all the nations of the earth, those who believe in him and take refuge in him.